I want to make two points or put two propositions out there to you for you to think about tonight. And the first one is that your heart, my heart, but also your heart, our individual hearts, really matter to God. I don't mean just matter a little bit, I mean they really matter to God. And I've gone a bit further, as you see, and said your heart is a treasure of God's kingdom. Which might be a slightly strange way of putting it, but I'm going to try and justify that statement. Um, So that's looking at us as individuals. The next thing is looking at us corporately. It's a healthy church. What is a... what? Sorry, there is only one church. I hasten to add, as Tim will always tell us, what is healthy church? And I'm going to, I'm going to suggest that healthy church is a fellowship, above all else, it's a fellowship of the heart, of our individual hearts together. And then that third one, you may say I said two and already I can't count. That third one is the bit on the end where I'm hoping to challenge you just a little bit about if, if you're with me after the first two points, what does that mean in terms of how do we take care of our hearts? What should we be doing about our hearts? Maybe we're already doing it. Maybe we're not. So that's, that's the overview. Jonathan, if you flip on, I've got two slides of introduction, and this slide has got a lot on it, so you don't have to read it all. But I, I guess I just wanted to make the point right at the start that the heart is central. If you look at the Bible, I think um, Tim said this morning there's over 900 references to the heart in the Old and the New Testament. And it, if you look at these quotes, it's really, really critical. Uh, so Deuteronomy here, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength. And of course, this was what Jesus quoted. When asked, what is the greatest commandment? This is what Jesus quoted. And I would say, notice the heart comes first. Um, secondly, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. So that, that's also quite That's also quite critical. We don't just love with our heart, we trust through our heart. Jonathan, the next one is... Oh, we've got loads. Um, Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. This is talking about David, the shepherd boy. God looked into his heart and saw someone he wanted to be king of Israel. Despite the fact he had some big strapping older brothers, they didn't register with God because he looked at the heart. Jesus in Matthew says, these people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So yes, they sound like they're following me, but they really aren't. And then the last one, which we may come back to, where your treasure is, there your heart will also be, or there your heart will be also. So the heart is absolutely central. And on the next slide, I want to just explain what I mean by the heart. Yes, there is this organ in here pumping the blood, but I obviously don't just mean that. Um, some people, when they think about the heart, think about emotions. You know, oh, my heart, it's all my emotions. And actually, I think some people put away their heart, lock it down, because it's messy, it's emotions. I would say that uh, emotions are the voice of the heart, but the heart is a heck of a lot more than emotions. So if you look at these two first two quotes, there's the writer of the Hebrews who was talking about the word of God, and he says it's sharper than any double-edged sword. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The thoughts of the heart. So in other words, some of our deep thinking is done in our heart. Or at least that's how the Bible talks about the heart. And the next one is we also believe with our hearts. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And then if you flip on, Jonathan, I 
this is obviously one that we're more familiar with, I suspect, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. So in other words, to see spiritually, we use our heart. And then the next one is, oh, this is Solomon. What did Solomon ask for? Did he ask for great intellect? Did he ask for a keen mind? No, he asked for a wise and discerning heart so that he could judge, as it says, between right and wrong. And then the final one, or the strap line, is but I could have filled this talk with a load more slides because in the Old and New Testament you have the heart as the source of creativity, courage, desire, a whole load of other things and crucially the heart is how we listen to God. It's kind of like the instrument that we use to hear God's voice. So it's crucial, that's all I really wanted to say. Right, let's get on to my first point. Right, I am, I'm going to throw lots of verses at you, apologise for that. You can have the slides afterwards if you really want to follow them all. There's a proverb that Solomon wrote, which is quite key to this talk, or at least it's quite key to what I'm trying to say. Above all else, guard your heart. Now that could mean lock it away, but I don't think so. Because the next bit says, for it is the wellspring of life. It's where your life comes from. It's the source of your life, I think. The NIV says, or is it the message? Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring life. So whatever guarding your heart means, it doesn't mean locking it away. It means treat it as something very, very precious. And I, because I love John 10.10, Jesus saying, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. I would link those two verses together and say that Jesus is really interested and really committed to our hearts because he wants us to have life. Where does life come from? It comes from our hearts. You may say that's a bit tenuous, Andrew. You're strapping together two odd verses from the Old and New Testament. More importantly, when Jesus started his earthly ministry, he went into the synagogue in Nazareth, and all the people were there. What's he going to say? Because they knew him. They knew they'd seen him grow up. He's Joseph's son, carpenter's son. And they all looked at him and thought, what is he going to say? Because they heard all this talk about him doing miracles and things. And Jesus had the whole of the Old Testament to call upon. And there were hundreds of prophecies about the Messiah there. So he could have chosen any one of them. And which one did he choose? He chose Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, Right, this is the critical bit I'm going to focus on. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. Right, now, binding up the brokenhearted, healing the brokenhearted, that bit's straightforward. What did he mean about the rest of the sentence? Proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. Now, I don't think Jesus was talking about breaking prisoners out of jail here. I think this language we need to look at with the eyes of the heart, or we need to look at with a mythic perspective. Now, I'm going to come back to this later, and I'll, I'll just get my defence in early. Myth might seem like a slightly dodgy thing to be talking about in a talk, but actually I think there are bits of the Bible that we need to take a mythic view to. And, and by myth, I don't mean ancient Greek mythology. I mean anything, any story, it could actually be a film, any story or film that touches, wakes up our heart and deals with 
the deep issues of life. So something that really touches on the deep issues of life. And I think, and I'm going to argue this a bit more later, that when Jesus is talking about proclaiming freedom for the captives and release from darkness, he is talking about our hearts. He's talking about us, definitely. And I think he's talking about freedom for our hearts. So there is a strap line on this slide. Uh, this is my attempt. Jesus is saying his mission is to give you back your heart and to set you free. We'll come on and think about that a bit more. So if we can go on to the next slide, Jonathan. How does Jesus set us free? Well, Jesus said it himself. There was some, he said to some Jews who'd believed in him, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You probably know that verse, it's certainly in my head. The truth will set you free. So why doesn't it? Why, well, sorry, I'm speaking person here, I'm not judging the rest of you. Why doesn't the truth set us free? We know hundreds of truths. We have our Bible apps, we have our different versions of the Bible. We have more, you know, we in the 21st century in the Western church, we have more truth at our fingertips and going through our heads than I've had hot dinners. So why doesn't it always seem to set us free? Well, possibly two reasons. One is, it's up here. You know, I, I can say, mm, I know Jesus died for me, he defeated sin and death, he rose again, he ascended to heaven, he intercedes for me. That, that's great. I mean, I can say that. I can mentally assent to all of that. But I don't think that's what Jesus meant when he said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Knowing the truth is not up here, it's down here. So we've got this quote from David in Psalm 51. You desire truth in the inner being, make me therefore to know wisdom in my inmost heart. So David was on to this, and David was very much a man of the heart, a man of, as, like God's heart actually. So David understood that it isn't the mental ascent, it's not an intellectual exercise. We have got to get this truth down into our hearts. I think it's worse than that actually. I think it's the fact that in our hearts, in our inmost being, there's actually quite a lot of stuff that isn't true. And this is just, I mean, this is part of the issue. So what I'm talking about there is our convictions. I think as we grow up, I don't, we don't form our convictions, they kind of form within us. As we grow up, convictions are formed, often I think when we're quite young. And let's be honest, some of those convictions are not true. And they sit there. And they are not the truth that Jesus wants to get into our inmost being. How do we get truth into our inmost being? Well, just in John, just before that passage that Connie read, Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. And he says, I'll ask the Father, he will give you another counsellor to be with you forever. Notice that. The Spirit of Truth. So the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth. This is great. We're on something here. But when he, the Spirit of Truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. So great, this is the counselling work of the Holy Spirit. He is going to get truth down into us. Now, if, someone came, if one of your friends came to you and said, um, I know you're having a bit of a rough time, you could do with a bit of counselling, so I've paid for three sessions of counselling with a local, a very talented local Christian counsellor, not looking at anyone over this side of the room, but suppose one of your friends came and said that to you, you might think, oh, that's kind, thanks, yeah, that's nice, that's good, I'll go for that. Suppose that friend came to you and said, actually, mm, I've booked uh, 25 weekly sessions because, well, you know, you need it a bit. No, that isn't what this says. What this says is the Spirit 
the counsellor is here forever. He is here to stay. So we clearly do need this counselling. We don't just need a little health check every now and again. We need him every moment of every day. And that's the promise that Jesus makes, that the Holy Spirit. He is there for all time. But I'm afraid the, the, the sort of implication of that is we really need it. Um, so, what is the Holy Spirit up to in your heart? That's the, I'm going to ask you a few questions, but that is the first one. What is the Holy Spirit up to in your heart? That might be, I mean, often these things are very personal. So, for me, and I've spoken about this before, so I won't bore you with it, one of the convictions that I have had for most of my life as a Christian, in fact, I, yeah, almost all of my life as a Christian, was that I'm not a very spiritual person. I don't hear from God myself. I mean, other people might do, that was fine, but I don't hear from God. That was a conviction that formed over quite a long period, and it took, I mean, the Holy Spirit is usually very gentle with us, but on this particular occasion, he was quite, he gave me a, a right kick, because actually, he needed to break that conviction and get me to the point where I believed something different. I wanted to hear from God, but that conviction was dragging me down. So those are the sort of things that can affect us. Now, I'm talking myth, myth again, well, not really myth. If you're interested in just watching something that helps you think about the counselling work of the Holy Spirit, can I plug a strange film called The Legend of Bagger Vance? It's not a Christian film. It's got Matt Damon and Will Smith. It's actually quite a good film. It's about golf. If you don't like golf, don't worry. You don't have to like golf. But it's a really good film of someone who had lost their heart, someone whose heart had been really pinned down, and through the counselling work of the Will Smith character, Bagger Vance, who is a very strange character, he gets his heart back. Sorry, I've spoiled the story for you. But it's, but it's very, but it is very, very true of how the Holy Spirit works, that film. Really, really true. I don't know quite how that film emerges from a non-Christian perspective, because it's so close to it. Anyway, one of the convictions, so that there are some specific convictions for me, for you, that maybe the Holy Spirit is working through at the moment. I mean, my question, what's the Holy Spirit up to in your heart? I don't think, I'm not being rude there, because he is here to stay means we all need him. It's a process. However far we've walked with Jesus, we haven't got to the point where we don't need the counselling work of the Holy Spirit. So, um, I'd like you to think about that. One conviction, or one, or one untruth, that I think can affect quite a lot of Christians, and I think it's affected me in the past, possibly still, is the thought that really, are, and it's to do with the heart, which is why I'm going to focus on it, is that our hearts are, you know, they're not, they're not good. They're, they're a bit evil, really. There's some dark things down in our hearts. And I just want to address that now. So, Jonathan, if you could flip over. The old covenant view of the heart is what... I just described. So here we go, Jeremiah. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? That sounds pretty damning. That is not the new covenant message about the heart. You heard it earlier. Uh, Mary read it in Ezekiel. A new heart, put a new spirit in you, I'll remove the stone heart and give you a heart that's God willed, or a heart of flesh, as the NIV would say. In other words, not a hard heart, but a soft heart. And you may say, yes, but doesn't Paul in Romans go on about there is no good thing in me and when I want to do good, I do evil and I can't help it kind of thing. What Paul is saying in Romans is there is nothing good in his sinful nature. I don't believe he's saying there is nothing good in his, but his heart isn't good. Because in Ephesians, he wrote, 
I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. So he's looking at the inner being again. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So here's the really good news. Our hearts are the dwelling place of Jesus. Therefore, there is n- they are good. Jesus doesn't dwell with evil. So our hearts are good. That doesn't mean we will not struggle with sin, temptation. It doesn't mean life is a, isn't a battle. What it means is that at our core, if we've chosen to follow Jesus, we are good. There is good there. And I, and I don't know whether that is a shock to you, but I think it's really quite important because I certainly know a number of Christians will say to me, oh, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Well, that is true to a point, but it's not a very helpful view of how to live your life now, having received Jesus into your life. So, and if you don't believe me, let's just flip over to um, what Jesus said about this. So these are from two of Jesus' parables, and I will read them because if someone's li- li- uh, listening on the tape, they're not going to have a clue what I'm talking about otherwise. Um, Each tree is recognised by its own fruit. People don't pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. The good man brings forth good things out of the good stored up in his heart. Or from the parable of the sower, seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering produce a crop. So, your heart is good. That's one of the truths that we need to get down into our hearts. Right, I'm on to the second part. Did you notice in Jeremiah 61, uh, can you flip over, Jonathan, sorry. In Jeremiah 61, as well as the release from captivity, as well as the setting free, there is that first bit of the sentence about binding up the brokenhearted. And that word brokenhearted literally means shattered. So it's like what would happen if you had a nice porcelain vase and you accidentally knocked it onto a granite floor or a tiled floor. So, and I was thinking about this, and I, I thought about this for a, for, for a little while. If, I don't think this is me, you know, because I, 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 I had a good upbringing, my parents loved me, um, I didn't get bullied at school particularly, um, no physical abuse, no sexual, nothing horrible happened to me. I feel I've had a good life. So when I read this verse a few years back, I sort of said to God, well, yeah, that's nice, but that's not me, is it? I'm not broken-hearted. My heart isn't in pieces. And then one of my friends, one of my friends said to me, do you, uh, you can flip on Jonathan, one of my friends said to me, but do you ever find yourself in a situation where you suddenly get unexpected emotions? That could be anger, it could be it could be sadness, it could be tears. You know, and, and you're, not, you're just not sure why that happened. Do you ever, th- and this was the one that got me, unfortunately. He said, do you ever feel very young? Or stuck somewhere? And I sort of said, young? And the young is a bit of a, I don't know whether you ever feel very young, but uh, I can remember something 10 years ago when spiritually uh, I was pretty dead, let's be honest. Um, and I was at work in a presentation skills course, so you can see I didn't really learn a great deal. And... Um, I was, it was a group thing, but I was doing some one-to-one with this lady and a video camera, which always unnerves me. And um, she, uh, we were trying to work through some technique. I can't even remember what it was. I just remember that she asked me to talk about something, and I began to feel very uncomfortable, really quite quickly. And I suddenly felt like I was about 
I don't know, five or ten years old. I felt like a little boy sitting there. And the strange thing was that she spotted it too and suddenly said, oh, have I upset you? Have I said something wrong? Have I, you know, what, what have I done kind of thing? And I said, I don't know, but I just don't feel comfortable anymore. She said, right, okay, we'll stop doing that. And so we moved on. Now, I saw the video afterwards. I destroyed it, by the way. Um, and it was quite shocking. A 45-year-old man sort of transformed into what I believe now is a six-year-old boy in the space of about 30 seconds. And now, hopefully you don't have the same hang-ups as me, but if there are situations where you feel young or unexpected emotions, then I would suggest that somewhere, that it, and I'm not looking for problems in people's lives, but I would say that that is indicative of a bit of your heart being broken at some point. And just, it's very, I mean, just recently, I've been thinking about this, not just because of this talk, although I have been thinking about it quite a lot because of this talk, but even before that, I just, and, and now, I mean, at the time, when this happened ten years ago, I had no idea, I had no sense as to what was going on in my heart. It wasn't something I thought about. So, being a typical man in, oh, sorry, possibly person, but being a typical man in that situation, I took that situation, I shoved it down in my heart and tried to forget all about it. Didn't quite succeed, but I did. So, but I have to say, since um, God has woken me up spiritually, I have been thinking about that and trying to work out, well, is there something broken there? Or, or, or is this just me? Or was that just something very, very strange happening? And um, one of the issues that I've been dealing with is this issue of shame. I don't know quite what it is, or I didn't know quite what it was, but I had this sense that in certain situations, as I became more attuned to actually think about these things, I just, there seemed to be a lot of shame in my life. I didn't know what it was about. So I asked Jesus about it, and that, that's a slightly risky thing to do. Um, I, said, uh, I said to Jesus, I said, look, I don't understand what this shame thing is, and I don't understand quite, you know, why at times I feel like I'm about five or ten years old. And just straight away, he gave me three things that happened in my life, which think of the answer. And, and ironically, two of them I actually had already kind of got to myself. Two of them are points when I was about 11 and 18 when bits of my life were in meltdown. So they weren't a surprise to me. The real shock, and the one I'm going to, it's a bit of a stupid example, but I'm going to share it with you in case it helps somebody. The real shock was the first one, when I was six years old and at infant school and um, having a nice time at infant school, actually. And um, it, was the t it was an era in the late 60s when we used to walk home from school. We didn't have to have parents come and pick us up. So me and some friends would walk home from school. It was about a mile. And just next to our little school, and between us and the junior school, there was this sort of little glade of trees. That was quite nice. And we used to like mucking around there because there were insects and things you could play with. And if you're boys of that age, you like playing with insects. Um, and the junior school kids parked their bikes there. And one of us, I don't even know who it was, discovered that you could turn the lights on on these bikes. And we used to think this was a fantastic game, and I didn't really know about torches and batteries, but we used to get after school, we'd go out into the state, switch on all the bike lights, and really enjoy all these colours. We used to think this was fantastic. Now, we didn't switch them off, that is true. Um, but you can see where this is going. We thought this was lovely. Anyway, one day, predictably, as we're switching on all the lights and standing back to admire our handiwork, a, a sort of six or seven very big junior school kids come piling out of the trees, grab us, lynch us, frog marches off into the junior school, introduced us into several classes 
where we are paraded as the awful people who switch on the bike lights and took us to the headmaster who gave us a good whatever and sent us home with our tails between our legs. Now, I'll be honest, I went home from that situation and I was ashamed. I had no idea what I'd done wrong, but I knew I'd done something terribly wrong and I just, I never spoke to my parents about it. I hoped that no one would ever speak to me about it. I shoved it down very, very deep and just left it there. Um, but I believe, because Jesus just kind of surfaced this when I asked him, that actually most, there is a little bit of me that is still six years old, as it were. A little bit of my heart is still there, wondering what on earth is going on here. So anyway, a couple of them short, short, I haven't done it very well. I invited Jesus into that situation and asked for his healing. And I think there are certain things, certain events, they're not major events necessarily, where we need to open our hearts to Jesus for him to come in and restore us and heal us. And the funny thing was that what he then said to me was, it wasn't your fault. Which I found a very strange comment to make. And I said, what do you mean it wasn't my fault? Of course it wasn't my fault. I didn't know anything about batteries and lights. And he said, no, it wasn't your fault. I said, anyway. The critical thing, I think, about these things is that there are, we, we form these convictions too easily. And once they've lodged in our hearts and we've shut them away, because we don't want them to see the light of day, they can really trip us up. So I think that, that's kind of a better example. That was me. A better example is Jesus reinstating Peter. So, you know the situation. Peter has denied Jesus three times, having said he wouldn't. How is he feeling? Well, I think that is a break. I mean, I think there is a break there. That is a, a real wound. Okay, Jesus has risen from the dead, so everything's great. But is it? Not really. Peter is supposed to be the man upon whom Jesus is going to build his church. And yet this man, at the crucial moment, let Jesus down three times. So I think if I'm Peter, I'm pretty finished at that point. And Jesus knows that in his kindness. And he takes him aside on the beach after his resurrection and he says to him three times, do you love me? You know the story. And Peter says, yeah, of course I love you. Why are you asking? He says, no, do you love me? He does it three times because Peter denied him three times. And it hurts Peter. It really hurts him. If you notice, it says Peter was hurt the third time. Why are you asking me this question? And, you know, those things that are laid down in pain, like the denials there, have to be accessed. The only way to access them is in pain. So if God, in your lives, is bringing up things which are stirring up memories that maybe you don't want to remember, I would suggest that actually you go with it. And I would suggest you ask Jesus to come into those situations, into those memories, and you actually work through them with him. Because if you try and keep them locked up, they will continue to trip you up and cause you to react as I did this even I'd like to say I've got complete healing to the shame thing, but I would be lying because even in this last week, a really, really odd situation which I generated, which my wife will tell you about, but I'd rather she didn't. But it's... I, I assimilate shame from things like football teams that I support is what I learned this week, or, or semi-support. So it, it, we do need healing from these things. Um, by the way, if you want to see a film about someone whose heart is broken and it's restored, and these aren't Christian films. Goodwill Hunting is a fantastic film. It's a bit gritty, the language is a bit fruity, don't watch it with young children, but it's a really, really good film. And just to show, I can choose a film that isn't, doesn't involve Matt Damon. Um, yeah, the wholesome version 
is Disney's The Kid. Sounds awful, it's got Bruce Willis in it. I don't like Bruce Willis. But I have to say, this particular film, if you watch it, is all about a man who literally is taken back to a moment in his childhood. Right. I said that our hearts are the treasure of God's kingdom, and I, and I was going to try and justify that. Well, you've seen this Isaiah, this Isaiah quote already. This is Jesus speaking, so this is kosher. This is definitely right. Now, here's my bit of Isaiah that I've picked up. I will go before you and will level the mountains. I'll break down the gates of bronze, cut through bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord. Do you find sometimes when you read the Bible, the language is a bit sort of highfalutin, a bit overblown? This looks like one, but I think this is where we need the eyes of the heart. This is where we need a mythical perspective. Because I think if you take that perspective, um, what you see, or what you will, what I'm deducing from this, is that to some extent we must all be held prisoners. We must all be constrained in some form of darkness. And what is this hidden treasure? I would suggest it's our hearts. They are not, our hearts are not darkness, but they can be hidden by darkness. They can be pinned down. They can get stuck in situations. So, at this point, and I've probably used up most of my time, but I have got a bit more to go, let's, but before I do, let's just stop and let's talk to God about this. Um, I just, yeah, I want you to ask him, well, ideally, these two questions. Ask him to show you that your heart is good, you may or may, you may have already done that, but if you haven't, ask him to show you that your heart is good. And if you don't know what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life at the moment, what the counselling role of the Holy Spirit is, ask him. Okay, so I'm just going to do a little prayer and I'm going to give us a, min- a couple of minutes of silence and I'd like you to ask God in your own hearts. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came to rescue us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you were willing to go to the cross for us, Lord. But we thank you that that wasn't the end of the story, that you rose again and that you are seated in authority. And we pray, Lord Jesus, for your wisdom and your insight now, Lord, as we come to you. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you will... If this is something that we haven't done before, Lord, Pray that you will show us that our hearts are good. We pray that you will help us to see where you're working in our lives through your Holy Spirit. And Jesus, we just, we want to honour you in our lives, Lord Jesus. And we pray for your counselling Holy Spirit to be there every moment of our lives, Lord. Someone that we can turn to someone that we can trust, someone that who can counsel and guide us uh, into your ways. So now, Lord, we just bring ourselves before you. Okay, let's, let's just bring that time to an end. I, I have got a little bit more to talk about, and I know that I am running out of time, but I do want to um, just cover quickly those other two points. So if you could flip on... Yeah, thank you. So, you, you heard Connie read from John 17, where Jesus is praying for the disciples, but he's also praying for us. Uh, he's praying for those who will believe in him because of the disciples and their witness. So, that's us. And he says the goal is for the, his followers to be of one heart and mind, just as you, Father, in me and I in you, so they might be one heart and mind 
with us. And then the world might believe that you sent me. Well, here's the good news. It works. Jesus is, well, not just it works. It worked, but it works. So if we flip on to Acts 4, and this is a passage that Tim has brought up several times actually recently, the whole congregation of believers was united as one, one heart and mind. They didn't claim ownership of their own possessions. No one said, that's mine, you can't have it. They shared everything. The apostles gave powerful witness to the resurrection of the Master Jesus. So it worked for those disciples. Jesus' prayer worked. And it can and will work for us too, being the people who came after them because of that. It's about the one heart and one mind. So what is a healthy church? Well, I think sometimes a lot is made of that Acts passage about the fact they share their belongings. Everyone is very hung up about, ooh, how could we do that in the 21st century? How could we share lawnmowers and cars and all the rest of it? Which is good, but it sort of then misses the fact that they did everything. It wasn't just they shared their possessions. They did everything together. They lived together. They fought together for the gospel. They celebrated together. They knew each other really, really well. They knew each other's stories and they knew their hearts. And so it was a fellowship of the heart, I believe, where they actually fought for each other's hearts. And that, from my perspective, is what healthy church is. I've got, I've got something brave there. It's like a family. And then I put a good family. I mean, what is the point of family? The family is, the point of a good family is that they see your heart, they see your glory. Haven't got time to talk about glory today, that's a whole other sermon. They see your heart, they see your glory, they affirm it, they encourage it, and then they release it into the world which badly needs it. So that, and that's what the church, that's what we as a church family should be about. Now, it needs to be small and in, intimate. That is a challenge once you go beyond about 10, 12, 15 people. But you can have small groups within a much larger group of, of followers of Jesus. Um, it will be messy, yeah. Uh, the disciples, it was very messy. I mean, Jesus modeled this for us and Judas betrayed him. In the early church, you have Ananias and Sapphira. Um, that there are always things that aren't quite right, but it's worth fighting for. And I think the fighting for is quite important. Uh, you kind of need to fight for it like you would if you're in a life raft after, you know, in a storm at sea. So you've, you've abandoned ship, you're in the life raft, you are bailing. That's how we need to fight for the church. Like, not just because we want it to work, we want it to succeed, but because we need it to. That's why all those house churches in countries where there's explicit persecution of Christians work, because they need it to. And if you think about this, all the one another's in the scriptures make a lot of sense. And we went through them all in that series, you know, forgive one another, love one another, bear each other's burdens, give each other the benefit of of the doubt. Indeed, in our Life Hub recently, we were talking about, uh, it was the bit passage from John, 1 John, we were talking about loving one another, and I asked, well, how do we learn to love one another? And Elspeth said, you do that, you can only really do that if you're doing life together. And I think that's what we're talking about in terms of healthy church. Um, I just couldn't resist the little platoons change the world, because whether it's called a band of brothers and sisters or whatever it is, small groups committed groups are so important and you might say and some people do say yeah the early church Andrew that was a one-off you know that the Holy Spirit had just come Jesus had just been risen from the dead all those people had seen him that's not the same 2,000 years later but I would argue that throughout history there have been little platoons of 
Christians or followers of Jesus who've changed the world. And of course, I'm now getting in my favourite example, which is Columba in 563. So in 563, on the west coast of Scotland, a little boat arrives with Columba, or Columseal, I think his name is in Gaelic, and he had 12, predictably, appropriately, he had 12 friends, monks, warriors, whatever you want to call him with him. And he was, they were coming into a world at which almost all of mainland Europe and Great Britain was pagan, and quite aggressively pagan. Because Rome had fallen, all the Christian influences had gone, apart from in Ireland, which is where they were coming from, and down in Italy and Spain. But the church in Italy was already becoming bureaucratic and institutionalised and political. It wasn't the New Testament church at all. The Celtic church was very different. It was, I mean, as I've said here, Celtic Christianity, it's still there. It's not top-down, it's bottom-up. It allows spirituality to flow from the heart. And that group of 13 people changed not just great, well, they changed not just Scotland, because actually Scotland didn't exist until Columba went to the King of the Picts and effectively converted him and turned Pictland into a Christian country. But it, for the whole of Great Britain, in terms of the Christian influence coming back in. Um, last week, do you, we, we were here last week when Tim said he had that dream, lots of brilliant things going on in a church service, worshipping, preaching, but it was all... Wasn't quite make, it wasn't quite hitting the mark for God. God said to him in the dream, I want my church back. And that is a challenge for us. Whatever we do in trying to build a healthy church, it needs to be God-centred, not us-centred. It shouldn't be here for our, you know, so we can feel good about ourselves. It should be feeling good about God. Right, I, got, I am onto my last point now, Mary. Um, I've carefully not looked at her for the last 15 minutes because I knew that she would be anxious about the time. Okay, taking care of our hearts. Above all else, guard your heart. Well, above all else. Of course, we do it all, don't we? We spend, you know, got lots of things to do this week. I've got a priority list of however many things. And top of it is guard your heart. Is that right? Uh, I think if you ask a typical Christian how long they spend guarding their heart, they'll say, what? So um, here's a really good saying from a very wise Frenchman who lived about 900 years ago. The man who is wise will see his life as more like a reservoir than a canal. The canal simultaneously pours out what it receives. The reservoir retains that water till it's full, then it discharges the overflow without loss to itself. You must learn to await this fullness before pouring out your gifts. Do not try to be more generous than God. Why are all these, why are so many Christians burnt out? They're doing really good things, but they just run out of energy. They're dry, they're burnt out. It's because they haven't spent enough time being filled. I know it sounds obvious, I know it's difficult in practice, but I think that is a really good challenge for all of us. So my final point here is, and, and this is open to mis this is open to, confu to confusion. Caring for our own hearts is not selfishness. Now clearly, if you spend every waking hour doing stuff that you want to do, going to concerts, watching sporting events, dining with friends. If it's all about you, 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 then I don't think that's following Jesus. Sorry about that. But most Christians I know are at the other end of the spectrum. There is nothing about caring for their own hearts because it's all about other people. I mean, they've got good hearts. They're out there doing stuff. But the point I want to flag is that you need, we need, I need certainly, to care for my own heart because 
if I don't, how can I love my neighbour? Jesus said, love your neighbour as yourself. That implies you love yourself. You may say, I have lots of grace for other people. I'm just hard on my own heart. I don't think that works. If you're hard on your own heart, in the end, that's what you'll be to other people. We have to be kinder, look after our own hearts. Otherwise, we will not be able to love our neighbours. And actually, I said that's the act of love, act of devotion. The heart is the dwelling place of Christ. So if we don't look after our hearts, what does that do for our relationship? Where's the connection if we aren't caring for our own hearts? It's, where we, it's how we listen to God. We're not going to hear him if we don't care for our hearts. And finally, it's an act of war. The Satan's number one ploy at this, in this age is to make us all so busy that we don't care for our hearts. Busyness is fantastic from his perspective because we're just constantly doing stuff. We're on the go. And, we are, and I know we, we are, actually. But when we're busy, 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 we don't have time to think about our hearts. And if our hearts are not being filled up, then they are weak and they are susceptible to temptation and we lose connection. So, can I, if this is a radical thought, then just take it and do something with it and ponder it. You know, it is good to care for your hearts. So, my final slide, Mary, you'll be glad to know, what will you do differently? If any of this is new to you, what will you, if it's not, that's fine, what will you do differently? And I guess, it depends on who you are. It's a personal thing. Caring for my, you know, me caring for my heart will be different from Mary caring for her heart or you caring for your heart. It could be that things that make your heart come alive are music, reading, uh, I put gardening, I don't see tents, so I don't think that works. Spas, no, that's not me. Ooh, but I know spas are the things that work for many people, not being. Mountains. Now, this is more like it. You know, mountains, they make my heart come alive. I need to slog up the mountain first, but you get to the top. There's a view. You're closer to God. What more would you like than to go up a mountain? So, the, the key thing, I think, is that we need beauty. It doesn't matter whether you find beauty in music or mountains or spas. We need beauty in our lives if we want to care for our hearts. And so, here's another French Christian philosopher, this time in the 20th century, Simone they who said there are only two things that pierce the human heart one is beauty the other is affliction bad news we will get affliction therefore we need more beauty we need more beauty than we get affliction and i don't think i have enough beauty in my life at times quiet and solitude yes we all need quiet and solitude this works with the busy 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 thing if you don't have any quiet and solitude solitude you don't stop jesus modeled this really well he was always in demand he healed a few people Hundreds turned up at his doorstep. He said to his disciples, oh, let's go somewhere else. So, how, that's very counter, I mean, that's countercultural in the extreme. We need to be like that. We spend our lives. I like this quote from Wendell Berry, who's an American, not a French philosopher. Jesus' wildness was in his refusal, or perhaps his inability to live within other people's expectations. I spend most of my life living within other people's expectations. I need to break that. I don't mean I need to just abandon all these things that I do at the moment. But we cannot live our lives totally constrained by other people's expectations. We need to find out what God's expectations are and live within those. So my final point, and you'll be glad to know it's my final point, is I was going to say, how do we care for our hearts, God? That you should, we should ask that. But actually, I don't think it's like that because I actually think God has stuff for our hearts 
which we're not receiving because we haven't asked for it. So don't ask, how should I care for my heart? Ask him, what do you have for my heart? Because I think he's got quite a lot for our hearts. And what we need to do is to find out what that is and, and let ourselves go into that.